Welcome to History of Cities, Episode 1-1, Birth of the Goat. It's the 650s BCE. In the Far East, the city of Wangcheng is the center of the longest-lasting Chinese dynasty in history. In the West, the descendants of Romulus have been living along the Tiber River in the middle of the Italian peninsula for just over a hundred years. In Africa, the great city of Thebes is a shadow of its former glory after being sacked by the Assyrians. These are all great cities in their own right, and incidentally, they each represent a stage in the life cycle of a city. The well-established resolute capital, the rising power, and the waning ancient wonder. However, we will be focusing on a city that represents the geographic thoroughfare of these subjects and at this point in time is just beginning its life cycle. This is the history of the crossroads of the world, Byzantium. Around the year 657 BCE, a group of colonists from the city of Megara, a lesser city near Athens, arrived at a strait that separates Greece from Asia Minor. The Strait of Bosphorus does not just separate the western and eastern world. It is also the connector between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. When seen from a map, this area of the world resembles one of the most famous paintings in history, the creation of Adam. This painting, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, in simple terms, depicts two subjects reaching for one another with just the slightest distance separating their outstretched fingers. Likewise, it appears at the Bosphorus Strait that Europe and Asia reach for each other, but never touch. When the colonists arrived at the Strait, it is said by the historian Tacitus, that their gods ordered them to found a city on the western side. They chose a fertile inlet that jutted out into the strait, or, to return to the analogy of the creation of Adam, right on Adam's fingertip. They would name this city Byzantium, and it would become one of the most important cities in the world. But the city would have to wait a thousand years or so for it to truly earn this title, and we have a lot of history to cover until then. So let's start with why the city was named Byzantium, and why it was located in this specific spot. As for the name, there is little to no evidence as to why the settlers chose to name it Byzantium. In a frustrating trend that we will see more of in the early history, the sources are sparse and their validity is questionable. Because if there's anything ancient historians like more than having their works lost to time, it's making stuff up. Nevertheless, we will go with the more or less accepted theory that the king of the Megarian people at this time bore the name Byzas, or He-Goat, and so they named it after him. But if you want a more colorful and exciting origin of the name, then you can accept the theory that a time traveler appeared at the founding of the city and told the people that this city would be the greatest of all time, aka the goat, and the name just stuck. The latter theory is the modern equivalent of the kind of stories ancient Greek historians would have had to parse through as they collected early oral histories of the area. As for the location, the exact spot of the city's first foundations was on the Golden Horn, a bit of land next to a big inlet that sticks out into the strait. This place offered a couple of advantages that the settlers were keen on exploring. For one, the land on the inlet was fertile, and if you want to build a city, you're going to need to feed it. For another, the deep inlet cuts off all land invasion routes except for those from the west, so strategically this nub is a very safe nub. The most important characteristic of this location was trade. Trade with the Persians in the east and the Greek city-states in the west. 
trade with the peoples who settled around the Black Sea and those that lived around the Mediterranean. By setting up shop, in the most literal form of that idiom, at the crossroads of all these trading partners, Byzantium set itself up to become fabulously rich and powerful, but not just yet. As an added benefit, this new city was directly across the strait from a slightly older city of Chalcedon, and on a clear day, the Byzantines could shout ancient Greek obscenities and mock the Chalcedonians for having chosen the less fertile side. Byzantium steadily grew and prospered independently for the first 150-odd years of its existence. Its fertile land, great fishing spots, and access to trade between the Persians and Greeks led to Byzantium quickly becoming a premier city in the ancient world. This location, between the great powers of East and West, would contribute greatly to the interesting history of Byzantium, as it allowed them to wheel and deal, to varying degrees of success, in order to try and further their own interests. However, being located at such a coveted spot also meant that they were frequently targeted by larger powers for assimilation, and as we will soon see, this attempted assimilation will clash with the ideals of independence and sovereignty of the Greek city-state culture. Before we delve further into the historical events that are of significance to the city, I would like to take a detour to point out the frustrating nature of studying the history of ancient city-states. That is, the nature that, at this point in time, the basis of written history is at its weakest. Herodotus is widely considered to be the father of Western history because of his work on recording the traditional oral and poetic stories of his day into a more factual telling of events. So he is the first source we will see on the history of Byzantium, but his history, while revolutionary for the day, is more like a collection of interviews from supposed eyewitnesses and traditional storytellers. This is not to say that we should wholly throw out his history, because geological evidence, as well as secondary contemporary sources, have helped prove that Heterodotus was a fairly reliable source. That being said, our problem comes from the lack of empirical first-hand written accounts, the fact that Heterodotus was born almost 200 years after the founding of Byzantium. This is all a roundabout way of saying that at the beginning we will have the least amount of solid information to draw from, and as we progress we will gain more sources, more stories, and more credibility. Now returning to the historical narrative, the Byzantines' first foray into big power politics and the historical event I would like to begin with came in 513 BC with the Scythian campaign of the great Persian king Darius. The Scythians were a nomadic people, originating in Iran, and at this time had settled the region around the north of the Black Sea, from the Caucasus to the Danube River. While I should clarify that settled, in terms of nomadic people, usually just meant that they had a specific territory in which they typically roamed and had pretty much free reign of. They did not have many permanent dwellings, and mostly moved around. The Scythian campaign was a punitive expedition by the Persian king after the Scythians raided the Achaemenid Empire and cut off the Black Sea trade to the Persians. Darius had a decision to make. If he wanted to attack from the east, he would have to pass the natural barrier of the Caucasus, forcing his army to march over nearly impassable terrain and risk being cut off from retreat or resupply by hostile tribes in the area. Or he could loop around the Scythians and attack from the west by crossing the Bosporus and possibly also adding a few rich Greek city-states to his empire. It was not a very hard decision for him to make. So in 513, Darius crossed the strait on a temporary bridge and added Byzantium, along with the other cities of Thrace, to the Achaemenid Empire. 
Darius found it decidedly less easy to subjugate the hypermobile Scythians, and after failing to engage them in a decisive battle while losing a portion of his army to attrition, Darius would decide to retreat while fortifying the lands he had conquered to dissuade any further raids from the nomads. Part of the consolidation of this partial victory was the establishment of tyrants to rule over the newly acquired territory in the name of the Persian king. Pragmatism ruled the day in 513 when Byzantium decided to capitulate to the much stronger Persians. However, along with cities settled by Greeks in Ionia, modern-day Turkey, that were previously conquered by Darius's predecessor, Cyrus the Great, the yoke of the Persian tyrants were detested by the Byzantines and would prove an unbearable burden that would eventually lead to them joining a great uprising called the Ionian Revolt that would pit Byzantium and its city-state allies against the Great Eastern Empire. History will recognize this revolt as the opening events of the wider clash called the Greco-Persian Wars, as the Greeks attempt to throw out their oppressors and regain their sovereignty. Episode 1, Part 2, An Army of Lesbians Last episode, we discussed the founding of Byzantium in 657 BC, and their annexation by the Achaemenid Empire during the Scythian Campaign in 513 BC. In this episode, we will talk about the result of the friction that was growing between the Greek city-states and their foreign rulers. The year is 499 BCE, and a Persian army is sailing home to Miletus. Their leader, Aristagoras, has accrued massive debt and failed completely in his attempt to take the island of Naxos. This puts him under the dual pressure of unhappy debtors and an unhappy Persian royal court. In an all-time classic prima donna move, Aristagoras decides to burn it all to the ground, rather than face the consequences of his actions. After arriving in Miletus, Aristagoras gathers his people together and declares his intention to incite a rebellion among the Greeks and Ionia. Coincidentally, he receives word from his uncle-slash-father-in-law, two titles that should not be shared, that he should start a rebellion. The call to rebel from his uncle Histiaeus is obviously not because he sympathizes with the plight of the oppressed Greeks, but because Histiaeus is unhappy at court in Susa and wishes to be sent to Ionia, which he previously ruled over. Luckily for our two scheming Persians, the Ionian region, as well as the other surrounding Hellenic regions, are ripe for revolt. These regions are incensed by the Persian rulers called tyrants and are willing to go to extreme measures to see them expelled. It is to this pile of kindling that Aristagoras will toss a match when he abdicates his tyrant and implores Miletus to declare independence from the Persian Empire. In order to add fuel to their rebellion, the Milesians would need allies. Already, the other cities in Ionia, inspired by the Milesians, overthrew their tyrants and established democracies. These cities would not be enough to withstand the might of Persia, so Aristagoras went looking to the powerful cities of Greece proper. First, he went to the famously war-hungry Spartans, but was rebuked. Then, he went to Athens and Eritrea, where he had more success, likely due to Athens also being a democratic city and Eritrea owing the Milesians a debt of military support. The revolt would enter its active phase a year later in 498, when the Ionians, along with the Athenians and Eritreans, attacked the capital of the Lydian satrapy, Sardis. Satrapies are Persian provinces ruled by a governor called a satrap. The rebels were initially successful in capturing much of the city, 
while corralling the Persian garrison into their fortified citadel. However, when a fire was accidentally started and quickly spread throughout the city, the garrison took the chance to sally forth and drove the Greeks out of the burning city. As the Greeks retreated, they were followed swiftly by Persian reinforcements that had come to defend Sardis. These reinforcements quickly caught up to the rebels, and in the Battle of Ephesus, the Greeks were soundly defeated. After this defeat, the Athenians and Eritreans abandoned the cause and returned to Greece. It would seem that this revolt would be short-lived and inconsequential. But of course we know that it was not short-lived and inconsequential. Or else why would we be studying it 2,500 years later? The burning of Sardis, while a tactical defeat, inspired other regions of Hellenic Asia Minor to rise up against the Persians. Ionian soldiers occupied cities on the Hellespont and Sea of Marmara. The region just south of Ionia, called Caria, also decided to join in the revolt. Further from Ionia, the island of Cyprus took the opportunity to also declare themselves in revolt against Persia. Most importantly to our interests, Byzantium was captured by the rebels, along with other Thracian cities. So despite the fact that the first and incidentally only offensive campaign of the rebels was a complete failure, the revolt would not be short-lived and inconsequential. With the revolt well and truly in full swing, we come to the year 497, where the Persians have finally mustered their armies and are ready to attempt a multi-front counteroffensive to crush the rebellion. It will be easiest if I just go through each front individually and then pause right before the end for a little recap to refocus and digest the chaos of the Ionian Revolt before the final campaign. So I will start with the brief sideshow of the revolt in Cyprus. Cyprus at this time was divided into many small kingdoms that all joined in the revolt called for by the king of Salamis, Onesilus. That is, all the kingdoms except for the kingdom of Amathus. Therefore, Onesilus was forced to siege the city of Amathus, and it was there that he received the news that the Persian army, supported by a Phoenician fleet, was heading to quash his rebellion. Onesilus hurriedly implored the Ionians to help him as he raced back to defend Salamis. The Ionians did not arrive in time to stop the landing of the Persian army on Cyprus, but did later engage the Phoenician fleet at sea and beat them soundly. However, at the same time, the Persians engaged the Cypriot rebels outside Salamis. A brutal battle ensued, in which both the Persian general Artabius and Onesilus were killed. The Cypriots were eventually routed and with the death of their leader capitulated to the Persians. Shifting our focus back west to the Ionian theater, the Persian forces were divided up into three armies, each led by one of Darius's sons-in-law. These three armies each had an area that they initially set out to retake, but the ever-changing nature of war caused them to do a bit of swapping around. The largest army was led by Darius's, who was tasked with taking the cities on the Hellespont. Throughout 497, Darius's methodically took a smattering of cities after besieging each one for only one day. However, the entrance of Caria into the revolt caused him to march his army south to face this new threat. He arrived in Caria in 496 BC, where he encountered a rebel army on the far side of the Marasus River. The rebels had a smaller force and contemplated crossing the river first, 
so that their forces would see that there was no chance for retreat, and thus be more willing to stay and fight. Obviously, the rebel commanders did not have much faith in their non-professional troops' resolve. In the end, they decided not to cross, and despite the commanders' fears, the Carians stood and fought the Persians valiantly, before finally being defeated by the overwhelming number of Persians. The Battle of Marasus saw the Carians lose five men for every one Persian, and the remaining rebels forced to retreat to Labronda. With morale understandably extremely low, the Icarians debated whether they should surrender or get the hell out of Dodge. While they wasted time debating, they were reinforced by an army from Miletus. This ended the debate, as now the rebels believed they were strong enough to face the Persians again. Unfortunately, they were wrong, and when the Persians caught up to them in Labrunda, the results were even worse than at Marasus, with the Milesians taking the heaviest casualties. But just like after the burning of Sardis, it seemed like the lowest point for the rebels was actually just the darkness before the dawn. Riding high on his victories, Darasus pranced around Caria, taking cities and towns as he pleased, fully assured that he had completely crushed the resolve of the Carians. He was thus completely caught off guard by the ambush they had prepared on the road to the town of Pedasus. The rebels obliterated the Persian army and killed Darasus, turning his complete victory into heartbreaking defeat, and turning the campaign in Curia into a stalemate. The second army, led by Hemias, had a campaign that lacked the great historical drama that gets sung about in epic songs and talked about in lowly history podcasts. They started out campaigning on the southern coast of the Sea of Marmara, where they took the strategic city of Sias. After Darius left the Hellespont to put down the rebellion in Curia, Hemaes shifted over to finish what his brother-in-law had started. To cap off a not-so-exciting campaign, Hemaes suffered a not-so-exciting death when he got sick on the road and died. The third army was jointly led by Otanes and the satrap of Sardis, Artaphranes, who was probably a little pissed that the Milesians had burned his city. They started their campaign by taking the cities of Clazomene and Syme. This initial success of their campaign slowed down after they received word of the disastrous ambush of Darius and Caria. Despite this slowdown, Aristagoras was feeling the pressure in Miletus and deciding that it was only a matter of time before the rebellion was crushed and he was executed. He fled to Ionia. He ended up in Thrace, at the city that had been founded by his uncle Histaeus during the Scythian campaign. From this base of operations, he led campaigns against the Thracians, who had not joined the cause. In a rebellion that is marked by consistent low points for the rebels, another came in 496, when while on campaign, Aristagoras was killed by the Thracians. The man who had started the rebellion, and was its most unifying figure, was dead. And once again, it seemed like the revolt would fizzle out. Lo and behold, however, that as one man exits, another seeks to take his place. After sitting on the sidelines for the first three years of the revolt, Darius finally granted Histaeus his wish to return to Ionia. Coach had finally put him in, and now it was time for him to take this opportunity to prove himself. Histaeus's head was filled with dreams of retaking his place as the rightful ruler of Ionia after delivering the final blow to the already thoroughly kicked around rebels. These dreams faced the harsh light of reality, 
when he arrived in Sardis, instead of welcoming him, Artaphranes laid the blame of the revolution on Histaeus, stating that it was you who stitched this shoe and Aristagoras who put it on. Before he was likely captured and executed, Histaeus skedaddled to the island of Chios, and from there sought to join up with the rebels in Miletus. The Milesians, however, were having none of Histaeus's hero complex, and promptly told him to get lost. Once again, he was forced to flee, this time ending up on the island of Lesbos. The people of Lesbos were more inclined to believe Histaeus's grand plans of leading the rebellion to complete victory against the mighty Persians, and so lent him eight triremes. Taking these eight triremes and an army of lesbians, no, not that kind of lesbian, though if you want to imagine a group of buff women in flannels, denim, and work boots marching in phalanx formation, don't let me stop you. Histaeus set sail for Byzantium. Hey, remember when this whole podcast was supposed to be focused on this city alone? In Byzantium, Histaeus began the forced requisition of any ship that passed through the Bosporus to aid in his cause against the Persians. I would like to pause here to recap and set the stage for the final act. We started with the tyrant of Miletus, Aristagoras, and his uncle, Histaeus, conspiring to exploit the unrest of the Greek city-states under the yoke of the Persian Empire in order to further their own personal ambitions. They declared a revolt in Miletus, in which other city-states of Hellenic Asia Minor, as well as Athens and Eritrea, joined. The action started when the rebels attacked the capital of Ionia, Sardis, where they burned the city, but were repelled by the Persian garrison, and then routed at the Battle of Ephesus. The revolt spread to the Hellespont, Propontis, Byzantium, Caria, and Cyprus. In 497, the Persians launched counteroffensives on multiple fronts, subduing the Cypriots after their leader, Onesilus, was killed in battle. The Persian armies in Ionia, the Hellespont, and Caria had initial successes, but after the defeat and death of Darius at the Battle of Pedasus, the campaign slowed down and a stalemate ensued. Aristagoras was killed after fleeing to Thrace, and Histaeus received a cold welcome from both the Persians in Sardis and the Greeks in Miletus. In response, he set himself up in Byzantium and prepared to wage a counter-counteroffensive. Meanwhile, on the eastern side of the Aegean, the Persian forces were consolidating their holdings and regrouping for the final push on the city of Miletus. The land armies condensed into a single force under the command of the Median general Datis and supported by a mixed fleet of Cypriots, Egyptians, Cilicians, and Phoenicians. In 494 BC, the rebel Ionians met on the island of Lade, where they decided their advantage lay better at sea than on land. It is for this reason that they decided not to try and hold Miletus, but would fight the Persians at sea. The Persians appeared to agree that they were less likely to win a naval battle, so they decided to undermine the rebel advantage by convincing factions to desert the Ionians. This effort of diplomatic sabotage proved decisive when the rebels finally engaged the Persian fleet off the coast of Lade. Before the two sides met, the Samians broke rank and sailed away, joined by the lesbians. Chaos ensued, and despite the valiant efforts of the Chians, the rebel fleet was completely dispersed. Without the protection of the fleet, Miletus quickly fell, and the revolt was effectively ended. 
Miletus was destroyed, though not permanently, and most of the inhabitants were either killed or enslaved. Any rational person could see that the writing was on the wall, but a defining characteristic of self-aggrandizing egomaniacs is that they are not rational. Thus, despite the writing on the wall, Isteus still believed that this was his chance to achieve his dream of leading the rebellion to victory. From his base in Byzantium, Histeus first sailed to Chios. The Chians did not want to hear any of Histeus's BS, and so refused to talk to him. In response, Histeus attacked the already beleaguered Chian fleet and forced them to join his cause. The not-so-grand campaign began with an attempted siege of Thassos that was quickly aborted when Histeus got spooked by reports of a Persian army in the area. The rebels retreated to Lesbos, but did not have enough supplies there to feed their army so they were forced to return to the mainland to forage. It was while foraging near Malin that the rebel army was discovered by the Persians, who decisively beat them and captured Histeus. Confident in his own greatness, Histeus believed he could get a pardon from his old buddy Darius, but instead of being sent straight to Susa, he was handed over to Artaphrenes. Artaphrenes got his last little bit of revenge when he executed Histeus by impaling him. Some part of Histeus did make it to Susa, though, as Artaphrenes cut off his head, embalmed it, and sent it along to Darius. It is unlikely that in this state, Histeus was able to get a pardon from Darius. It is with this gruesome scene that we end the six years of Ionian Revolt. You may be asking why I chose to talk about the Ionian Revolt in a series that is supposed to focus on the city of Byzantium since they only played a minor role here, and that most of the story so far has taken place far away from them. This is true, but I decided to include the Ionian Revolt, and will continue talking about wider conflicts in the region for the next few episodes for two reasons. First, is that though Byzantium is only a peripheral player at this point, nowhere near the importance of Athens, or Sparta, or the Persian Empire, and most recorded history at this time only includes them briefly, this will change as we progress through time. Secondly, the importance of these events on the political development of Byzantium is extremely important. I promise, as the narrative continues, the importance of Byzantium will grow, and we will soon be able to truly center the conversation on them. But for the time being, we will have to contend ourselves with events in which Byzantium kind of just pops up like a cameo character that we can point to and say, Oh cool, there's that one guy I know. To that end, in the next few episodes, we will cover the Greco-Persian Wars, in which the Greeks were only able to resist the Persians due to the formation of Greek solidarity during the Ionian Revolt. I would just like to say thank you for listening, and once again, as I am just an amateur fan of history and not a trained professional, if there is anything I got wrong or anything you think I missed, then feel free to email me at hofcpod.cast at gmail.com or message me on Twitter at H of C underscore podcast. Thanks again, and please join me next time for the epic throwdown between the Persians and the Greeks.